We can open our Bibles together this morning to Genesis chapter 2. We'll finish up the second half of this chapter this morning. We took the first half a few weeks ago, and in that first half, we got a recap of the creation week, as well as some interesting details about life before the fall. And really, all we know about life before the fall comes from the scripture, but specifically chapter 2 of Genesis. Verse 8 tells us that God planted a garden eastward in Eden. And that implies that Eden was actually a region. And God planted the garden in the east of that region, the Garden of Eden. This is probably eastward of where God first created man. Um, So the point of reference there of the word eastward is probably where God created Adam. This garden was full of vegetation that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. And all this vegetation was watered by this river that parted into four riverheads. And they're named in the first part of chapter two, the Pishon, Gihon, Hittikel, and Euphrates. And as we mentioned last time, there's no use in trying to relate these rivers to our modern-day rivers, because even Peter says in 2 Peter 3.6 that the world that then existed, that is, before the flood, was completely destroyed. It was wiped out. So all these geological features that we see before the flood, it's really impossible to relate them to current geographical features. And this brings us to verses 15 through 25 where we're going to spend our time this morning. And these verses give us greater detail about those events that were recorded in the second half of day six of creation. So you, you can picture like in a map, you've got the whole area, and then sometimes you'll have a zoomed in area. So it does a little magnifying glass and pulls up a smaller portion of the map. That's what we're having here in the second half of chapter two. We're zooming in on the second half of day six of creation. We're getting details about how God actually created man and woman. So we'll look at that. We'll read through Genesis 2, 15 through 25 together. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now a bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. 
Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. The ideal marriage, the first marriage. Back in verse 15, then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Man wasn't created in the Garden of Eden, and we got a glimpse of that in the first part of the chapter. Rather, man was created outside the garden, God planted the garden, and then he placed man in the garden. It's interesting to see that God waited to create man until the last day of the creation week, when the earth was already filled with other forms of life, plants to eat, and the stage was completely set. Likewise, God waits to place man in the garden after he had already planted the garden, prepared it for man. He knew exactly what Adam needed and provided it before Adam even knew that he needed it. But possibly even more interesting than that is that this pattern of providing before Adam realizing his need is diverged from. That pattern is broken in the case of Eve. And we'll look at that in a little greater detail. But God does want Adam to realize his need for a companion, which is why he first allowed Adam to search through all of the existing animals to try to find some comparable companion. Then he created Eve after Adam had already realized his need. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. Work. This is paradise, and Adam has to work? Yes. Remember, we were made in God's image and likeness. God works. He doesn't sit idly by. He has to be involved, and he is involved in our lives and wants to be more so. It's in his nature to work, and so it's in our nature to work. Now, of course, this isn't the kind of job that Adam would wake up to and dread going in. It would be fulfilling. You know that feeling of satisfaction you get from a job well done, and you finish that project, and it's pristine. You can step back, Take a little breath, and you feel good. You feel good about that work that you've done. There's a sense of fulfillment there. I expect our work in eternity to consistently provide that kind of fulfillment. And I'm sure that Adam's work in the garden here was the same way. It was constantly fulfilling. There was something about it. It was paradise. And of course, he didn't toil. He didn't have to eke his living out of the ground like he would after the fall. And his work wouldn't be like a gardener's work today. He wouldn't be pruning dead limbs off of trees or picking weeds that were trying to take over. It'd be something completely different. Maybe it would be like arranging, like floral arrangement. Maybe that was his his work. Or just making sure that these trees and 
herbs and plants of all different kinds grew in a constructive manner. Maybe that was something like he had to do. Tending here, it says that he was to tend and keep it. Tending could mean that he's directing this, the growth of these plants. Like a gardener chooses to arrange them in a certain manner. Like some you'll need in direct sunlight, some you'll need in partial sunlight, uh, something like that. Keeping could mean that he is just to watch over the garden, to keep tabs on it. That word is also translated observe, and it's this idea of presiding over. That's his job. He's to be the watchman and the steward of the garden. Verse 16, and the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat. And God goes on, but I want to make sure that we get the impact of this first part of this statement. Every. Every can be read as any. So the Lord God commanded the man saying, of any tree of the garden, you may freely eat. That's a vast variety. Of any tree that God created in this garden, Adam had access to, free access, no limit on the number of mangoes that you could pick and eat. And we know from chapter 1, verse 29, that man is also given the herbs for food. The herbs aren't explicitly mentioned here, but we know that's included. This is an almost unending menu of delectable fruits and veggies for Adam to enjoy. And I know what you're thinking, oh, fruits and veggies forever. I'm sure they were much better than the ones we have today, although we do have some good fruits. I don't know about veggies. Maybe you like veggies. (laughs) But the variety, if nothing else, would have been second to none. And then there's this, this one fruit that he can't eat. You know, we'll come to that, unfortunately. So they have all of these options to choose from, but God continues in this command. He says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. There was one tree that Adam was instructed not to eat of. The tree of life was there too, and there's no prohibition of its fruit mentioned here. We remember back a little ways, it said that the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil were in the garden, God only prohibited eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Nothing said about the tree of life. Only one tree that they weren't supposed to eat from, and what do they do? They say, oh, well, where's that tree? You know, in true human fashion. But isn't that so typical of all of us? And especially our kids, Right? Gail Irwin told a story a while back. He said, my wife and I had dinner reservations at one of our favorite restaurants, and we were finally getting a night off to go have a date, and we got a babysitter lined up with the kids, and as we were walking out the door, I turned my head back to the kids and said, don't put beans up your nose, and it was about the middle of dinner that he got the call had to take his kids to the ER because they put beans up their nose. You know, the only reason they did that is because that was in their mind. Don't do this. 
but they did it. You know, I'm sure that as he was hearing those words come out of his mouth, he was thinking, what did I just do? I've just ruined our date night. Because what do those kids have on their mind? Putting beans up their nose. You can't say don't do something. And here's another example. This kind of idea also applies to coaching athletes. And if you don't know, I also coach. That's my other little job. And when you're coaching someone, especially in our sport like weightlifting, you're trying to manage what they're doing with their body, but you're also trying to manage what they're doing in their mind. And so that adds another challenge to it. And this isn't a unique tactic to me. A lot of coaches do this, but I make a concerted effort to speak to my athletes in positive terms, not negative terms. And I don't mean that in the usual sense, but positive in like, this is what you should be doing, not this is what you shouldn't do. So for example, if I want them to stay balanced during their lift, I won't say, don't get pulled back on your heels, because then what's in their mind? Coming back on their heels. I say, put pressure through your whole foot. That's what they should be doing. So now that positive thing is in their mind and they're thinking about doing that. If I tell you, don't think about pink elephants riding a unicycle, what's the first thing you think of? A pink elephant riding a unicycle. So it's this positive and negative terminology that you can really use to to impact how your athlete is performing. And that's just to illustrate our tendency today to latch on to what we hear, whether it's good or bad. And we see this prohibition come from God, and we fall into this trap of asking, why would God allow this tree to be in this perfect garden if they couldn't eat of it? You know, we struggle with this sometimes. Was he just dangling a carrot in front of them? Was he just toying with them? But what a faulty line of logic that is. Don't we know that God is good? We certainly do. We know from his word and from our experiences in our lives, God is good. So we know that there is no impure motive to his actions. Then there must be a perfectly good reason God placed this tree in the garden. Who are we to question our creator? It's like the clay questioning the potter. He has no right. And this is kind of where the dialogue between God and Job ended up towards the end of the book of Job. God said to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Who are we to question how God does things? He's so far above our understanding. Of course, God didn't just impose this rule on a whim. He actually tells Adam part of his reasoning, which also acts as the consequence for breaking this rule. He says, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall 
surely die. God didn't want Adam to die. That's why he put this rule in place, at least in part. Don't you set rules for your kids? And it's just because you're a spoil sport, right? You just don't want them having fun. So you put rules in place to keep them from having fun. Of course not. No, that's not it. It's because you know that if they touch the stovetop, they'll get burned. It's a layer of protection. God gives us rules so we don't get burned. You know, don't eat of that tree because you'll die. And don't get involved in this or that because it will ruin your marriage. It'll ruin your relationship with your kids. Or it'll rot you from the inside out. You know, don't get involved in certain things. And it's not because he doesn't want us to have fun. It's because he cares about us. And although I don't think that we can even approach a complete understanding of God's reasons, I think we can begin to understand why he placed this tree in the garden. And some people think that there's something inherent about the tree that made Adam get sick or, you know, some kind of poison, carcinogen. I don't think that's the case. You know, God called everything in his creation very good. I I don't think that there was anything inherent about this tree that made it poisoned to Adam and Eve. And it didn't have to. That's, That's not necessary to go along with the story. The tree represented a choice that Adam could make between obeying God and disobeying God. A life with God on the throne or a life with Adam on the throne. It, it was representative of that choice. And yes, it was a real tree, but it was also representative. Remember, there's a difference between an allegorical interpretation and an allegorical application. This allegorical application has to do with the symbolism of this tree and a choice. The tree represents this choice. I don't want to go into this too much this morning because we'll spend a lot of time on it in chapter 3. But just understand that this choice is set before Adam in the garden, no doubt to test his love for God. Verse 18, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was found no helper comparable to him. So, Right off the bat, if you're reading closely, you may come across an apparent contradiction. Okay, and I want to address this right off the bat. In reality, there's no contradiction. Um, This has to do with the forming of the animals. It looks like it may be telling you that the animals were formed at this point. It is not. It's simply recounting what has already been done and the creation of the animals is not the focus here. The focus has shifted from creation, like the sequence of creation, to Adam himself. 
So we're getting details about Adam and Eve, and it's kind of thrown in here that, yeah, God created the animals from the dust of the ground and brings them by Adam. In other words, that information is supplemental to the focus of the passage. There would be no need for the author to go back and recount the chronology of the creation account. He just gives it to us in short form. So God looked at Adam and said, it's not good for him to be alone. And if you're married, God looked at you and said, it's not good that we leave this one alone. He needs somebody. And I think that applies to all of us. It seems that God here brings a sampling of animals to Adam for naming. By what means God used to bring them, I don't know, but it seems to hearken also to the account of the ark when God brings all of those animals to Noah by some supernatural means. Regardless of how he brought them or how many he brought, we can tell that Adam had some extraordinary creative and mental capacities. He was brilliant. And if you're coming at this from a more secular viewpoint, that may surprise you that Adam was, in fact, intelligent. But when you realize that Adam was a direct creation of an omniscient God, it reads much more comfortably. Adam wasn't walking around on his knuckles with a club. He was rationally, linguistically, logically, and creatively sophisticated. He was able to give each of these animals a unique name as they walked by him. I actually don't know if I could do that. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. And you may have noticed that some of the categories given earlier for animals are missing here. They seem to be left out. And it looks like we're only talking about the domesticable animals, cattle, the smaller wild animals that lived somewhat close to Adam, the beasts of the field, and the birds. The animals classified as fish, creeping things, which were probably insects and things that crawl close to the ground, and beasts of the earth, which would have been those larger wild animals that lived further out from the humans, those were not included in this procession for Adam to name. But the real reason behind this scene and this procession of naming the animals seems to be God's desire for Adam to understand his own uniqueness among the animals. God wanted Adam to see all these animals passing by him in pairs of male and female, and he wanted Adam to realize that he was unique among God's creation. There weren't any animals that could match his ability to reason, to communicate, or to be creative. But above all else, none of these animals could match Adam's spiritual capabilities, his ability to commune with God. That was a necessary prerequisite for being his companion, 
He was also unique among the animals in his aloneness. He was a solitary man. There was not yet a partner for him, a female. I think that's something that he took to heart. And it says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And it's not that this would have been a surprise to God. You know, the plan from the very beginning was male and female. He, he never intended to leave Adam alone, but he created the animals as male and female right off the bat. By bringing these animals past Adam for him to look at, it's not like God was surprised that he didn't find a suitable companion. Of course, he knew there was nothing out there, but he wanted Adam to know. And when I look at my wife, I see someone who's different than me. We're not the same. We have different characteristics. But she's complementary. You know, there are things that she's strong at that I'm very weak at, and vice versa. Your wife wants to worry about different things than you do. And she's perceptive of different things than you are. When we get home after church, Summer will ask me, like, did you see she was struggling this morning? Do you see the look on her face? She'll be like, I went over, I gave her a hug, tried to encourage her. And I could tell so-and-so had a tough week, and um, so-and-so still has some unresolved feelings about what happened last week. I'm like, what happened last week? Like, <laughs> like no, I, I didn't see any of that. I'm sure she wonders how I get by, just make it through a day. But I'm just sitting there thinking, did we even go to the same church this morning? Or did you go somewhere else? She just picks up on different things than I do. You know, I notice if we're running low on coffee or something like that. (laughs) But she notices different things. And she's a compliment to me. You know, she has no idea if we're running low on coffee. And she picks up my slack in a lot of ways. And it wasn't good to leave me alone, because who knows what would have happened. And it wasn't good for Adam to be alone. And so God takes action. Let's read verses 21 through 25 again. And the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. This deep sleep shows up a couple of other times in the Bible. We see it here, of course, in Genesis 2, but also in Genesis fifteen twelve, when God caused a deep sleep to fall on Abram. We also see it in 1 Samuel 26, 12. And... We see here when, oh, it shows up one other time in Isaiah, but it's a little bit 
of a different occurrence. When Adam went into this deep sleep, God took one of his ribs. But I don't see this deep sleep as a sort of anesthesia. I don't see it as a sort of sedative because pain wasn't yet introduced. So I think it was something else. And it could be that it's a picture. You know, no pain. God might not have had to knock Adam out to take from his side. But the church and Christ. We're looking at marriage here. We know that marriage is this picture of Christ and the church. Christ was asleep for three days to let the church be created. That, and so we have this kind of picture here. And maybe, I don't know, that's part of why God chose to put Adam to sleep. Ribs here, it says that he, then the rib, which the Lord God had taken, rib is actually more accurately translated side. It's, it's not necessarily a rib. And people have this funny notion that for some reason, if this was true, then men would have one less rib than women. That's silly. If somebody breaks an arm or gets amputated, their kids don't have an amputated arm. Like, it's, it's silly logic. So all the somatic cells that make up your whole body except for your germ cells, it doesn't matter if they're mutated, changed, or anything. It won't be inherited. It won't be passed on. Your germ cells have to mutate for that mutation to be tra- passed on. So it's, it's kind of funny, but that's actually not very good logic. So ribs is actually Adam's side. That's more accurately what it means. So God closes him up after his little surgery. 22, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. Now we're introduced to a new word right here. It's the first usage in the Bible. The word translated made is not the same as the others that we've seen throughout the creation account. This one is actually built. He built the woman out of Adam's side. It's the same word that's used to talk about building cities, building walls. Very interesting usage. God carefully planned out and fashioned this woman to be the perfect companion for Adam. And there must have been a reason he built Eve up in this seemingly strange way, or at least the Holy Spirit employs an interesting word to get this point across. Adam was fashioned from the dirt, but Eve was fashioned from Adam, not from the dirt. And so when a man and his wife come together, there's something of completeness there. It's a union. And it's meant to be that way. It's a completeness that reaches all the way back to before the fall. You know, marriage is the only human institution we have from before the fall. There in paradise, God ordains marriage between man and woman. And it's saddening to see the ways that humans have twisted marriage. 
But we can look to this example of Adam and Eve's union to see his true intent for marriage. But this picture of marriage seems to go even beyond the simple human institution of marriage. In the New Testament, we get insight to the fact that marriage serves as this picture of Christ and the church and their relationship. And that's something that hadn't previously been revealed in the Old Testament. In fact, the church, the mysterious body of Christ, had not been revealed in the Old Testament. So this new way of looking at marriage sheds new light on the picture that God set up in this creation of Eve. Speaking of the church as the body of Christ, Paul writes in Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying or building up of the body of Christ. The building up of the body of Christ, the bride. Ephesians 5.24 and other New Testament passages present the church as the bride of Christ, both the bride and the body of Christ, like Eve, both the body and bride of Adam. So right now, the church, which is the body and bride of Christ, is being built up on earth for Christ. And the purpose of that building up is so that we may be presented to Christ as a chaste virgin at his coming. 2 Corinthians 11.2 All the way back in Genesis 2, we have this remarkable picture of Christ in the church. Who could have contrived this? You know, this is centuries and centuries before Christ even came around. Even further, the flesh from Adam's side made Eve what she was. Likewise, Christ on the cross was wounded in the side to make the church what she is. That suffering made the church what she is. A remarkable picture here. Verse 23, now this is Adam's reaction to this woman that God has built and presented to him. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. The word used for man here is distinct from the one that we've been seeing used consistently, Adam. The word now is ish, and it's the Hebrew word for husband. And the word that's used for woman is isha. You can read it using those words, she shall be called isha because she was taken out of ish. Isha is the word for wife. So the wife was taken out of the husband. Makes perfect sense when you combine the two There's completeness. There's a wholeness there. Isha was formed from Ish, the wife from the husband. And verse 24, therefore, so in light of this completeness, 
man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleaved to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The reason for this one fleshness is this. Eve was taken from Adam. They began as one flesh, and so the union of marriage takes them back to that state. And you can't help but notice the parallel with flesh and bone here in verse 23 to the glorified body of Christ after his resurrection. In Luke 24, 39, Jesus says, Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. It seems that the glorified body of Christ and eventually our glorified bodies are of flesh and bone. And there's no mention of blood there where we think it would fit right in. It seems to be above coincidence that Adam here speaks of flesh and bone before the fall as being their makeup. Did Adam and Eve first possess a similar body to what our glorified bodies will look like? You know, I think there's, there's good ground to say that. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. There are two big parts of this act of getting married. There's the leaving and the cleaving. So a lot of marriages have suffered because one of the parties neglects this first act of leaving. It's very important. When a couple gets married, they're starting a new family unit that's distinct from both of those family units that they both came from. And as parents, if you know what's best for your kids, you have to let them go when they get married. There's a severance, a leaving. You have to burn the boats because they are now with their wife or with their husband, and they're on their own. Now, this doesn't mean that you isolate yourself from your family. There's not a, a cutting off like that. Visits are good. You know, holidays are good. But even holidays bring up an interesting dynamic because you've got the traditions of both sides of the families. And it's now the onus is on the new couple to create their own traditions because they are a new family. So it's a difficult thing to navigate, but it's something that has to be given some thoughtful attention. And after the leaving, there must be this cleaving. So they have to cleave to one another. They've got to be stuck to one another. No longer do you turn to your parents when you have a bad day or need to work something out, but you turn to your spouse. They are your person. They must become the most important person in your world, and they have to know that. Now, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, leaving and cleaving, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I think that this is an appropriate time to address this really important issue of the reality of Adam and Eve. 
Some will say that this whole story, including the figures of Adam and Eve, are allegorical in nature. And I know we hammered away at this, I think, the first Sunday we were in Genesis. But this is very, very important. If they were just allegorical, Adam and Eve never actually existed as humans. Okay? This could very well be one of the most essential issues that we'll tackle in Genesis. It's that important. Because you need to understand that the reality of a literal Jesus hinges on the reality of a literal Adam. 1 Corinthians 15.21 For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 46-49 However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Romans 5.14 Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. It's abundantly obvious through these passages that Paul regarded Adam as a literal man, and he regarded Adam as a type or a precursor of Christ. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. If we bear the image of an allegorical Adam, then will we also bear the image of an allegorical Christ? (laughs) For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. If we died in Adam only allegorically, will we then be made in Christ alive? only allegorically? Or is Paul talking about a physical reality here? I think the answer is pretty clear. Even Jesus based his teaching on marriage on this account of the first marriage in Genesis 2. This teaching is recorded in Matthew 19, 3 through 9, and Mark 10, 2 through 12. Jesus refers to the first marriage as a factual and historical event. And he points to the fact that the husband and wife are one flesh as a reason to not get a divorce. Jesus thinks that Adam and Eve were literal people. And it's no small matter to disagree with Jesus. Verse 25, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. With no sin yet in the world and no one else besides the man and his wife, there'd be no reason for them to be ashamed of their nakedness. However, we know that 
a little bit later in the next chapter, they will be ashamed. When they disobey God, introduce sin into the world, they then realize their nakedness. They're bare. They're laid before God. And they are ashamed. So next week, spoiler alert, if you didn't know, they end up eating from the tree and introduce sin. So we'll take that on, probably take a couple of weeks to get through chapter three, just because there's so much there. And there's a lot of different angles that you can hit it from. So we'll work that out, um, get through that. We're going to stop there this morning, and let's all close in a word of prayer. Thank you.